We are in week two of a series titled Simply Christmas. We launched this last week with the idea that the first Christmas was pretty simple. And it's okay if this one is too. If you look at the gospel accounts of the Christmas story, uh, you find that, uh, that that first Christmas was very simple compared to what you would expect for a king, the king of the universe, coming into the world. There was no pomp and circumstance. There was no royal palace or procession. There was a manger on a dark night. And that first, that first, uh, that first Christmas was very simple. And this one will be too. And maybe Thanksgiving was a little more simple than normal last week. Um, and maybe other things will not be quite as you had planned. But there is an opportunity for simple to not necessarily be a bad thing. In fact, last week we talked about this idea that culture seems to say that simple is bad and complex is good. And yet, if we think about it, there are a lot of things where simple is better. In fact, I wrote a a, a sentence in my journal or several sentences in my journal that were inspired by a quote from another author, but it just made this point that simplicity is not a detriment. Despite what society might say, and complexity is not a benefit. And may we, as people of God, not mistake simple for boring or complex for blessed. And so there is a good chance that 2020 Christmas will look a little different. And yet it could be the best Christmas that you've had in a long time. And that's our hope and prayer. And that maybe the shifts that are pushed upon us this year can help us to be intentional in years to come to make sure that Christmas enables us to focus on Christ. So last week we talked about simplifying Christmas, and the theme was sort of the peace, the shalom of God, the perfect peace of God. And how do we bring that into our lives? And we looked at Joseph and Mary, and particularly the angelic announcements as the angels came and told them what was to happen. We see in them a simple faith and a simple obedience, which makes a very powerful combination. That was our bottom line. As they got this earth-shattering news, they humbly accepted it with a simple faith and a simple obedience. Today we're going to be talking about anticipating Christmas. And so Pastor Zach set the stage beautifully for us to be anticipating, not only looking back at at the communion table with remembrance, but also looking ahead to its fulfillment at the end of all things, which is really the beginning of all things. And so today we're talking about hope. We're talking about an eager expectancy, that we would build a holy anticipation that as we simplify Christmas to what it truly is and what it truly means, that we would have a holy anticipation of everything that Christmas means. And so we're going to look at a couple of scriptures, but before we do, I wrote a couple of sentences at the end of the first paragraph of the Friday update this past week, and they just kind of found their way out of my fingers. I hadn't really thought or reflected on them a whole lot, but as I was writing that paragraph, these three statements, that God is with us, that Christmas proves it, let us rejoice. Christmas proves that God, Emmanuel, God with us, came to be with us, to redeem us and to bring us to be with him. And Christmas proves that. And so, regardless of circumstances we find ourselves in, we always have much 
to rejoice in. And so we're going to look at a couple of Old Testament passages first from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, which prophesy about the coming Messiah at Christmas. And then Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12, which speak to the coming king at Easter that we celebrate at Easter. And so we'll see how this all weaves together and how those two give us some insight into what scholars have called the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is now a present reality, but it is also a not yet, that there is more to come, that the best is yet to come, that while the kingdom of God is a current reality, it is a current reality that is filled with future promise. And so we'll look back at Isaiah 9 and Zechariah 9, but we'll also look forward to what is coming with holy anticipation. Will you read Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7 with me? I'll read a couple of verses at a time. We'll talk about it, make sure we know what's being said, what's being communicated, and why it matters. And, uh, and then we'll move on from there. So verse uh, 9, uh, or chapter 9 verses 1 and 2, familiar Christmas passage. In fact, I preached on just this passage for the whole Advent series last year. And if you missed that and you want to go a little deeper with this Isaiah passage, there's three sermons that you can go listen to on our website and, uh, and kind of get the rest of the story. But um, today we're going to focus on how these build a holy anticipation in us. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And so in verse 1, it's helpful to get a map out. If you don't have a study Bible with maps, um, it's helpful to to Google this, or or I've got some maps uh, here for you. But we're talking about a region that in the original 12 tribes, as the land was divvied up, there was the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. These were tribes of Zebulun and of Naphtali. And you can see those on the map on on the right side in the purple and the orange inside that red circle. And this was where those tribes lived. And basically, Isaiah said, in the past, this area has been humbled. These were the first areas that were taken out with the Assyrian um, exile when they came in. These were at the top, and they were taken out first. But he says that while you were humbled, you will be honored. And while you walked in darkness, you will walk in light. Galilee of the Gentiles, by the way of the sea, along the Jordan. And so on the left side of the map, you see Galilee in the purple inside there. And it covers the same region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And God is saying what was once humbled and what was once in darkness is now going to be honored and be a source of light. And a light will dawn there. And Galilee of the Gentiles, Nazareth, is right there in the southern part of that region where Jesus came from. And so there's a literal and a figurative sense where this is taking place. And this was a strong reminder to me that the map that shows the old tribes of Israel and the map that shows the current political designations and regional designations during Jesus' time, those are about 700, 750 years apart. And everything changed from the time that Isaiah wrote this and the time that it actually happened when Jesus came, 750 years later. 
And that was an encouragement to me, actually, because it feels like so much has changed in the last year, in the last 12 months. Who could have known? How many times have you said that? Who could have guessed this? Yet God's promises have not changed, and they are not hindered by the changes that we see around us. His promises are sure. His promises are certain. And while a lot changed in this time, and in this, there was an exile, there was the Assyrian exile, there was the Babylonian exile, there was the return of the exiles, there was the Roman occupation, there was, there was event after event after event that shaped the area, but it did not change the promises of God. And we can take courage and strength from that today. In fact, we're told in verse 2 that, that those who were living in the land of the shadow of death, that's, that's a picture, that's a word picture of a life with no hope. You're living in the shadow of death, where really the only thing you have to look forward to is death. It's a, it's a picture of despair, a picture of hopelessness. And yet, a light has dawned. A light has dawned in verse 2. Now, verses 3 through 5 kind of carry that uh, idea forward, carry that concept forward, that there will be an increase in the influence of God's people, and there will be joy and abundance, there will be freedom from oppression, there will be peace and rest from war. So when you read in verse 3, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. There is an increase in influence, there is an increase in joy, there is an image of abundance. And then in verse 4, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke of the, that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, there's, there's an end to oppression. There's a freedom from oppression that not only in the literal sense, like when this conquering nation was, was humbled, but that the oppression of sin and death over God's people will be brought to an end, that there will be an end of all oppression. And then in verse 5, every warrior's boot used for battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And you might be thinking, well, what's that all about? Well, that's speaking to peace and to rest from war and from conflict. As the warrior's boots and the warrior's clothing or tunic is no longer needed, there will be peace and there will be rest. All because, as we see in verse 6, to us, A child is born to us. A son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with righteousness and justice from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so, in these verses, we get the good news that how this is going to take place. First, we're told what's going to happen, and then we're told what that's going to mean, and now we're told how that's going to happen, that a child is going to be born, a son is going to be given, that he is not just the son of God, he's the son of man, he's not just fully human, he's fully divine, he is the Christ the Messiah. And not only that, the government, not just, don't just think about governments as we experience them today. This is talking about the kingdom of God, that government, that order of authority, that dominion and royal power is going to be on his shoulders. And it's going to increase 
exponentially, forever. And then we're told what this, this child is going to be called. And there's four names, and there's significance to these four names, tremendous significance. And I spoke on that specifically a year ago on December 15th uh, in the God With Us series. But today I had a new insight, or this week as I was preparing for this, I looked at those names and I saw, I saw the, the picture of the Trinity in these four names. You see, triune God is represented with the, the phrase mighty God, that Jesus, our coming king, comes as the mighty God. The triune God of all time, the Godhead. But not only that, we have an everlasting Father, and He is the image of the Father. He is the perfect representation of God among us. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace who came to us as the Prince of Peace, but did not remain the Prince of Peace. He became the King of Kings. And lastly, the wonderful Counselor, the Holy Spirit that's promised to us and, and that Jesus promises to us right before he's, he's betrayed and crucified and goes into the grave and comes resurrected, he says, there will be a, another counselor who will come after me, who will be with you and who will live inside you and teach you and remind you of everything. And all of that is represented in the Christ that we celebrate at Christmas. And so this king that comes to us, we're told that the increase of his government and peace will have no end, that it will ever expand. That means it's expanding right now. That means that it didn't take a break for 2020, that the kingdom of God, the government of God, is expanding even now. Whether we can see it or not, we're told that there will be no end to the increase of his government and his peace. And I believe that's a picture of what literally happens in the kingdom of God, but I think it's also what is available to us as his followers, that his kingdom can expand in our lives, that his reign and rule can expand within our hearts, and his peace can expand in our lives without end. It can, it can just continue and grow and continue because he is establishing it and upholding it. I love that combination of words, that he establishes it He brings it into being. And he doesn't walk away. He upholds it. He upholds what he has established. When Jesus prays in the garden, he addresses God as Abba. That's an Aramaic word that means source and sustainer. We translate it as father because in a very literal sense, in in the family unit, the, the father is the source and to be the sustainer. And our perfect heavenly father is our source and our sustainer. He establishes and he upholds. But not only that, I was reminded of Hebrews chapter 12 where we're told that Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. It's three ways of saying the same thing, that that he's the author. He writes our faith into being and he is the perfecter. He perfects it. He establishes it and upholds it. He is the source and the sustainer. He is the author and the perfecter. And he brings a divine and perfect justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Another picture of the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. From that time on, 2,000 years ago when Jesus came to earth and forever. There's no end to it. There's no break. There's no pause. And perhaps the best news of all comes in the last phrase of verse 7. It says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty shall accomplish this. You know why that's good news? Because that means it's not up to me. 
And it's not up to you. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. He cannot fail. God can do anything but fail. And his promises are yes and amen. They are going to take place. They are taking place in us and through us. And so that's all really good news. This prophecy that we've just read is really good news. But as I mentioned before, there was over 700 years that took place from the time that Isaiah wrote this prophecy to the time that it actually took place in Jesus being born in a manger. And from that point until the beginning of his public ministry was another 30 years. And so for 700 years, perhaps 30 or 35 generations, you know, they married pretty young and they they had children pretty young at this time in the world. So 35, 40 generations of people lived in the time between this prophecy was made. And most of those generations passed away before this prophecy was fulfilled. And yet it comes into its fulfillment in the person of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the liberator, the light of the world, the bread of life. And in Jesus, every hope was fulfilled. And yet, it's important to understand that many of those to whom Jesus came 2,000 years ago, they missed it. They missed the Messiah because they were looking for something else. They were looking for a conquering king that would come in with a political kingdom and would throw off Roman oppression. They missed the Messiah Because they were looking for a conquering king, not a suffering servant, not one who would die for the sins of all people in all times. You see, God had so much more in mind than throwing off the Roman oppression of one people in one time and place. He wanted to throw off the oppression of sin and death for all people in all places. And so we see that as a bridge to our study of Zechariah chapter 9. That what Isaiah prophesied was the coming of the Messiah the light coming into the world. And what Zechariah prophesies, as we read Zechariah, it'll sound familiar probably, but more in the context of an Easter prophecy fulfilled. You see, Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, of a donkey. So just as the Christ child came in humility, the conquering king, the king that conquers sin and death comes in humility, riding on a donkey, not a war horse. And we're told to rejoice, to shout because the king is coming. He is righteous and has salvation, which echoes Isaiah 9. He is gentle and humble, which echoes what we just read in Isaiah 9. And then verses 10 and 11 echo the prophecy in verses 3 and 5 of Isaiah 9. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. So what's happening in verse 10 and 11, it echoes verses 3 through 5 from Isaiah 9. There's going to be an end of war. There's going to be an increase of the kingdom of God, of its rule and reign. And not only is he just bringing peace to the nation of Israel, we're told here in Zechariah 9.10 that he will bring peace to the nations. He'll proclaim peace to the nations, not just to Israel, but to all of the nations. And that the blood of his covenant will bring permanent freedom to temporary prisoners. 
And last but certainly not least, in verse 12, one of my favorite phrases in the entire Old Testament is this. It it says, return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. O prisoners of hope. Oh, that we would be prisoners of hope. Not of fear, not of despair, not of discouragement. To be a prisoner of hope, we're told that even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. Everything that's been lost, it'll be doubled and brought back to you. That, that heaven is beyond what we can imagine. That earth has nothing that compares with it. And we're commanded, we're told to return to our fortress or some translations say your stronghold. It's a military term. It's a fortified place where there is strength, and we return to our fortress, to our stronghold, as prisoners of hope, as captives of hope. Another military term, to be held prisoner, to be held captive. But we're held captive by something greater. We're held captive by hope. And I was reminded of one of my favorite quotes uh, from a movie, and and maybe there's a few movie buffs in here that will figure out where this comes from, but the quote is, fear can set you prisoner, hope can set you free. And maybe you know what that's from. You're probably not going to guess who the original author of that quote was if you don't know which movie it's from. The author of that quote is Stephen King, which I find tremendously ironic. Stephen King is known predominantly for writing horror novels that have been turned into horror movies, but he also wrote some others that were not horror novels or horror movies. He wrote one called The Shawshank Redemption. And maybe you've seen that movie, and this this quote comes from that movie, that hope can set you a prisoner. I'm sorry, fear can set you prisoner, hope can set you free. Now, that's a really rough movie, so I don't want anybody to walk out of here and go rent the Shawshank Redemption because Pastor Mark said so. It is rough, and the language is rough. If you can get your hands on the TNT version, that helps a little bit because it's been edited for cable, but it's tough. And yet I'm reminded that life is tough. And there there is a theme that runs throughout that movie of the importance of hope against all odds. In the darkest of circumstances where there seems to be no hope, the central character holds on to hope and is never taken prisoner in that deepest part because of the hope that he maintains. And so rather than giving himself over to fear and dread and despair, which are the opposite of hope and lead to a living death, he hangs on to hope. And at the end of the movie, he even speaks about hope and says, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things. And I love that line, and I think that if our hope is in the right thing, then then hope absolutely is a good thing, and quite possibly the best of things. When we make ourselves prisoners of hope in Jesus Christ, then we will not be disappointed. Not for eternity. We may be disappointed occasionally in this life, but for eternity, we will experience far beyond anything we can even imagine. And so when you're anxious and when you're afraid, and 2020 has given us plenty to be anxious about, return to Jesus. Return to hope. Be held captive by your hope in Him and in His return. Make yourself a prisoner of hope. Declare to yourself that you are a prisoner of your hope in Christ and do not fear.
And it's interesting, if you look at the word that we translate as hope from the Old Testament, the word that Zechariah wrote in verse 12, hope is literally a cord. That's what the word means, a cord that you would wrap something up with. It's a, it's a cord that ties us, tethers us to Christ and to every promise that we have in him. It binds us to him as we wait for him with an eager expectation, with a longing that we would be prisoners of hope. And so the bottom line today, if you get nothing else, if I lost you 10 minutes ago, come back. Because the bottom line today is that when we are prisoners of hope, we are free from fear. Hope and fear can't coexist. And when we are prisoners of hope and prisoners of the hope we have in Christ, and I'm talking about the hope we have for eternity with Christ, we are free from fear. There are a lot of reasons that 2020 has given us for fear or anxiety. There were a lot of reasons to fear the first Christmas. We talked about some of those last week. The societal and cultural implications of the news that Joseph and Mary received gave them much to fear, and yet we see them both choosing hope over fear and living that hope out in simple faith and simple obedience. So whatever fear, anxiety, or dread you might feel right now, you have a choice to focus on that or to focus on the hope we have in Christ, the anticipation that we have in Him, the joy that He has promised to give to us for eternity. To so be a prisoner of hope and be set free from fear. Because one thing that is certain for those who hope in Christ, who have made themselves prisoners of hope, is that the best is always yet to come. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. And we pray, God, that we would become prisoners of hope. That there would be nothing that could pull us away from the hope that we have in you. And that when we're tempted to fear or anxiety or despair, that we would fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross, despising its shame, and are now seated at the right hand of God the Father. May we fix our eyes on you and be prisoners of the hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.